most important qualities of a good boss to me are bosses that listen to you, so who really helps you fulfill your potential as an employee. Today is National Boss Day. The tradition was started by a woman named Patricia Bays Horosky. She worked for her father at a State Farm Insurance branch in Illinois. Patricia wanted to create a holiday honoring her dad and other bosses like him for their hard work. So she registered the holiday with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in 1958. October 16th, her father's birthday was officially declared National Boss Day in 1962. Some of you might be wondering what kinds of gifts are appropriate for Boss Day. Well, you have plenty of options. There are a variety of cards, e-cards, flowers, and novelty gifts made especially for this national holiday. Who knew? Well, some Hallmark cards read things like "Wishing a Happy Boss Day to someone who seems to know a lot about making people happy." You're a great boss, and hope you know you're appreciated today and every day. Bosses deserving of those grateful greetings had to work hard to become great leaders. With us this morning to talk about some of the qualities all good bosses should have is Manny Avramides. He's the senior vice president of global human resources at the American Management Association, based here in New York City. Manny, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Oh, you're welcome. So, what are the qualities any good boss should possess? Well, I think some of the basic qualities. Uh, they should possess include leading by example, being open, honest, and trustworthy,、uh, being respectful and appreciative, and of course having an open door policy or, or making themselves available to employees on an as-needed basis. Should a good boss take responsibility for their employees' actions? Absolutely, a boss should always take responsibility for an employees' actions and should also address such actions. Um, if need be. Do you think that anyone could be a good boss, or are some people just not cut out for a leadership role like that? The debate goes on forever as to whether leaders are born or developed.、Um, the, the truth of the matter is, with the appropriate training, in my experience, with the appropriate training,、uh, most people could become good bosses. But the reality is, for a lot of folks who have a harder time at it, it's just not worth the effort on the organization's part. And, and the worst possible thing an organization can do is either a promote someone into a boss role, if you will,、um, and realize that they're incompetent at it, but just ignore it and leave them there, because then, they, of course, they have an impact on everything below below them and, and to the sides of them. And the best thing that they can do is continuously develop their managerial or, or supervisory personnel、um, to make sure that they're applying、uh, different techniques. Uh, not only from a technical standpoint, but from a, a humanistic standpoint or, or、uh, a competency-based soft skill standpoint with the employees, because different employees are motivated in different ways by different people. Manny, thanks so much for your time. Okay, good luck. That was Manny Evermedes, senior vice president of global human resources at the American Management Association. My name is Thomas Ingarjola, and I am a receptionist in New York Downtown Dental. Good qualities in a boss is caring, understanding, and Not being cheap. The worst boss experience I ever had was probably getting fired for being late. If I was to get my boss something for Boss Appreciation Day, I would get him Rogaine because he's bald. <laughs> You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Bodarki. Today is National Boss Day, so we thought, why not use the occasion to look back at some of the famous and infamous bosses in New York City history? 
including Mafia Bosses. I caught up with Eric Ferrara, the executive director of the Lower East Side History Project, who knows a thing or two about truly bad bosses. My name is Eric Ferrara. I'm executive director of the Lower East Side History Project. Now, this show today is all about bosses in honor of National Boss Day, and we couldn't let the show go by without talking about infamous mafia bosses in New York City. And we called you up because you're an expert about some mafia bosses here on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And you said, George, meet me at 235 Bowery. Why 235 Bowery? Well, it was a convenient location. It's right across the street from what was called Black Hand Block which is Prince Street between Bowery and Elizabeth. Uh, it was referred to as Black Hand Block because this is where uh, one of the biggest Black Hand organizations, the earliest, really what's called now the first family of the American Mafia, started out right here. Now, a lot of people might not be familiar with that term, Black Hand? Black Hand is a extortion tactic. One of the most common ways is a uh, Black Hand threat would be if you're a store owner. You would walk into your store one morning, you'd find a little note, that would say $200, August 6th, with a nice little uh, passage, maybe, Preparate pura tua morte, prepare for your death. Uh, this is it. Basically, you have until that date to come up with that money. There's going to be a 10-year-old boy that will walk by to pick up the money, and if it's not in the envelope, the method of choice in this particular city was bombing. They would blow up your house, your apartment building, or your building, uh, or your business. And it wasn't just a fluke thing. In 1907, 52 black hand bombs went off in lower Manhattan alone. 52 reported black hand bombs. And they're blowing off at least the first story, the, the storefronts, if not uh, the second stories of these tenement buildings. And six of them went off in the first three weeks of 1908 alone. It was a major, major uh, uh, thing to reckon with back then. And who was the person behind it? Was there a prime man behind it all? There were several uh, extortion black hand organizations. They were mostly Sicilians. It's, it's actually a Spanish tactic that was uh, adopted by the Sicilians that were brought here to the country. And one particular organization rose to the top, and that was the Morello gang. The Morello and the uh, Sayetas. What happened were these guys came from Corleone, eventually made it to New York City, and they started their extortion ring among many others that were starting their extortion ring. They just happened to be the most, ruthless, the most ruthless, the most powerful, and they rose to the top and became the first, really the predominant black hand organization here. Now, we have to talk about one man in particular, though, right? Giuseppe Morello? Giuseppe Morello is, was the, basically the de facto leader. He was probably uh, the most violent out of all of them, but they were all had, you know, there were a couple dozen of these guys, probably had 60 murders, each under their belt. A separate organization called the Ignazio uh, Lupo. Lupo is Italian for wolf. He, he was, that was his nickname, Ignazio Lupo. He's the guy who settled here on Lower East Side, actually right across the street at 8 Prince Street. That was his restaurant. What happened was by the late 1890s, right at the turn of the century, Ignazio married one of Morello's sisters, half-sisters. So their criminal organizations combined and turned into one of the largest organizations. So it was really, it was run by a few guys, but Morello was the head figure. What can you tell us about what it means to be a mob boss? I don't know why anybody would want to be a mob boss. If you look back at history of all the guys who were supposedly the boss uh, on paper, according to FBI, I think two of them died of natural causes. Every other one of them died in jail or were murdered. Every single one. You're talking about dozens of them. So why, what the mental 
thing in there that makes you want to do that, I have no idea. It's obviously power and ego, but it doesn't last long. None of them last too long. But at the same time, they are very feared individuals. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're feared. You get the, you know, just like you see in the movies, I guess, the respect. But you also, you really think about it, it's a lot of stress. I mean, you know, running any business is a lot of stress. But now think about every morning, there's 25 other people wanting your spot and always having to think steps ahead. It must be incredibly stressful. Plus, thinking about the people you killed on the way up. I mean, there's got to be a conscience there that... I couldn't even uh, imagine, fathom, that these guys must be laying in bed at night, what they must be thinking. Besides Giuseppe Morello, who else are among the more notable mob bosses? Oh, uh, I would say after him would be Giuseppe Masseria, the boss. He, well, he declared himself the first uh, Capo de Tuta Capi, uh, boss of all bosses in America. He basically came up through the Morello gang and eventually took over the Morello gang, but even got bigger during Prohibition. Uh, under his wing were guys like Charles Luca Luciano, who also Sicilian immigrant, but raised here in this neighborhood. And of course, Luciano now, if you turn on History Channel, he became you know, one of the most powerful guys in American history. Uh, so he is somebody that should be mentioned. But there were uh, a lot of bosses. I mean, there were a lot. What are some of the more infamous things Lucky Luciano did during his time? Lucky Luciano was very uh, sort of progressive, actually. And he was a part of this era that helped make the modern mafia contemporary, basically forming like the Mafia Commission. That was that era in the early 1930s after the Prohibition ended. And he was a guy who grew up here on the Lower East Side with a lot of ethnicities around him. So he had best friends with Meyer Lansky and all these other guys that may ring a bell that were Jewish and other sort of uh, backgrounds. When he worked with the Sicilians throughout his career, he wasn't allowed to work with these guys. So after a while, he sort of brought them in. Uh, when he had enough power, and he realized that you needed to sort of expand your horizons. Uh, and so he was really one of the guys, like, you think of Meyer Lansky, he's often credited with being the architect of the modern-day mafia because he was a guy that was behind the scenes of being a, a huge advisor to Lucky Luciano. Now, why did they call him Lucky? There are so many stories with that. Some people say, and we don't know for sure, well, I do know his nickname before that was Sal from 14th Street. A lot of people don't know that because he used to run the pool halls up here and sell drugs and, uh, uh, when he was literally a teenager along 14th Street. Lucky came about by the 1920s. Some people say he was a gambler. Some people say it was after uh, 1928 when he was almost murdered. He was shot and stabbed uh, and he survived. He came out. We do know that's when he changed his name officially from Salvatore Lucania to Charles Luciano. That's when he Americanized. So that's probably when the lucky name kind of stuck. It was probably the end of the 1920s when, when he changed his name officially. Did these mob bosses do any good for the neighborhood around here on the Lower East Side? That's a great question. Yeah, you know, these guys were part of the fabric of this community. Like, it was part of... Uh, it's hard to explain, but they were part of like the government in a way. They were part of paying your taxes, just like you and I would have to pay a bogus parking ticket or something these days. You accepted it as part of life, and there were some things that came with it. Uh, of course, protection on the neighborhood. Uh, if I owned the store on the corner of the saloon and I was aligned with the right person, nobody else would be able to mess with me. You know, you sort of accepted it as a way of life. And if you go back, yeah, of course, they were giving back. Some of them were very religious or came from, uh, if you were uh, Italian, you'd come from, you know, a background where you'd give back to the churches and things. And if you were Jewish, you'd give back to the synagogues and were kind of active in the communities as well, some of them. Eric, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate that. Eric Ferrara is the executive director of the Lower East Side History Project. 
Another infamous boss in New York City history was immortalized in cartoons. I'm talking about Boss Tweed, a politician that seemed to have New York wrapped around his little finger for quite some time. With us now to talk about Boss Tweed is Kathleen Hulser, a public historian with the New York Historical Society. Kathleen, good to have you with us. Good morning, George. When it comes to bosses, William Tweed is one of the more infamous ones here in New York City. Who was Boss Tweed? Uh, William Tweed was somebody who was born on the Lower East Side. He's of Irish-Scottish ancestry, and he's one of these 19th century figures who came up in the politics of the Lower East Side and became a political figure in the immigrant community who was powerful in the Democratic Party. Uh, The Democratic Party in New York City uh, was controlled by an organization known as Tammany Hall. What was the climate like in New York City during Boss Tweed's day? Uh, the, the immigrant party was sort of the insurgents, and they were opposed by the old-time uh, WASP elites who were gathered in various uh, parties and denominations. Uh, in the latter part of the 19th century, it was the Republicans, but it had various other names earlier on. Um, the immigrant uh, machine, or the ring, as it was called in the 19th century, was really based on the notion that that you could get a lot of people out to vote if you develop personal relationships with them. So Boss Tweed became the sort of model or the iconic figure of the party boss who knew how to cultivate relationships with voters and to get them out to the polls when the time came to get the candidates in that you wanted to get your political power in and get your guys into office. And what was he doing for people to get them to do that in return? Um, Boss Tweed uh, really delivered quite a lot. He delivered jobs. He had lots of patronage jobs. And he also had the power to often get the city to provide work when times were bad, because in the 19th century, the economic cycles were really jagged, you know, boom, bust, boom, bust. And uh, so he was at one time commissioner of public works. So he had the power to say, you know, let's, uh, you know, dig up the roads and widen Broadway, for example, or let's build some buildings. And he got schools built and uh, buildings built. So jobs was one thing that he delivered. He also delivered lots of services to constituents. And that would include if if your son got picked up by the police and you would say, my boy is a good boy, please, Boss Tweed, can you get him out? And he would go down and he would um, send someone to speak to the judge and get him maybe out of jail or maybe get him off with a light little slap on the wrist or something like that. Another thing he would do is Christmas and Thanksgiving. Uh, He would send around turkeys to the needy families in the wards where he had a lot of power, like on the Lower East Side and in Five Points, that area that was very near City Hall and that was home to lots and lots of Irish immigrants and also German immigrants who tended to vote Democratic and Tammany Hall. So the kind of services that he provided then were was something very real and meaningful to people. But while he was doing all of this good, he was also doing a whole lot of bad, right? 
the things that people have traditionally held against Boss Tweed was that he was corrupt, that the kind of uh, way he wielded political power was one that cost taxpayers a lot of money. Like it cost the taxpayers a lot of money to build the Tweed courthouse. This is an example of the kind of scandal that has become the poster child for corrupt politics in American life, the Tweed courthouse. So um, he was convicted for stealing uh, something on the order of $40 million to $200 million, which in today's money would be an absolutely huge sum in the billions. I'm sure that was a lot of money back then, too, of course. It was a lot of money. And um, the Tweed Courthouse took an extraordinary amount of time to build. And during the trial, it came out that there were some uh, pay scales there that even by today's standards, we'd find pretty amazing. Like there was a plasterer who supposedly got paid um, uh, uh, several hundred thousand dollars for two days' work. And a, a carpenter who made $130,000 for his work. These are completely unheard of sums. How did he get away with this? Boss Tweed had close relationships with Mayor Oki Hall and also close relationships with the controller who okayed the bills on public pro- programs like that. And so um, he himself said when he was being tried that uh, it was his custom to add a couple zeros onto the bills. And um, you could see that with figures like that in the 19th century, there must have been a couple zeros added on. Was he living a pretty lavish lifestyle with taxpayer money? Uh, he supposedly accumulated a personal fortune of $12 million, which is is huge. He himself was the son of a chairmaker, so he certainly started out with uh, nothing. A chairmaker is a very modest job. <laughs> And his education was not uh, a very great education either, and he didn't have any particular uh, qualifications that would have led him to earn $12 million on his own. So uh, it seems that that money must have been diverted from uh, public funds in some way. <laughs> was he known as Boss Tweed during his time, or is that a reputation that he earned through history? Uh, he, he he was known as a boss at the time, and some people have disputed whether he actually had all that much power. But in uh, both in today's world and in the world of nineteenth the ni- the world of the nineteenth century, when you have a reputation for having a lot of power, you might as well uh, be said to have the power itself, because having the reputation for having the power is almost the same as having the power. <laughs> What brought Boss Tweed down? He seemed to have made uh, a couple errors. He alienated the Orange Men, which is those uh, Irish people who came from the Protestant side of uh, the the Irish uh, immigration, the Scots Irish. And um, there were there was they they went after him and exposed him in the New York Times, which was a reform newspaper, and most notably in Harper's Weekly, which was also a reform newspaper started around the time of the Civil War. And the thing that seemed to really have played into the shift in public opinion against him was the very famous Thomas Nast cartoons. 
Thomas Nast was himself a German immigrant who uh, came from the Democratic Party and would have been thought to be a kind of Tammany Hall supporter himself. Many of the German immigrants were supporters of Tammany Hall and of Boss Tweed. Nast's cartoons portrayed Boss Tweed in a totally memorable fashion, like uh, one cartoon uh, called him The Brains, and it substituted a huge money bag for his head. He was always depicted in these incredibly loud checked suits with a big, expansive belly. His, his big, big belly bursting out of his waistcoat was uh, seemingly a symbol of him getting fat on the public treasury. And uh, these cartoons, uh, Boss Tweed famously said, were the things that uh, seemed to have provoked his downfall as much as uh, any of his real misdeeds, because the public began to perceive him as a real villain. What he, what Boss Tweed said was, well, many of my constituents can't read, but those cartoons, those are really, uh, they're those damned cartoons. So he was convicted in 1871, and he went to jail, and then he managed to uh, bribe his way into escaping, and he escaped to Spain, and the Spanish authorities recognized him on the basis of the cartoons and uh, extradited him, and then he was put back in jail. He caught pneumonia there. Conditions in the Ludlow Street Jail in the Lower East Side of Manhattan were very, um, you know, very crummy, uh, and he got pneumonia, and he died in jail. Died in jail, and now he's... Buried in Brooklyn, right? Right. At the Greenwood Cemetery. Uh huh. One of the many famous uh, people who were who are buried there. Um, Boss Tweed, in many ways, his legacy now is uh, very mixed because there's some people who said, you know what, he genuinely did things for people at a time when Catholics were discriminated against. He helped subsidize Catholic schools. He helped to fund teachers' college. He got salary increases for school teachers. He stopped corporal punishment. Um, He's got quite a few things that he actually delivered on, and what was held against him was the fact that that uh, he was sort of uneducated, he had the wrong accent, he wore the wrong clothes. Um, so that the whole interpretation of this idea that this boss and machine politics was a complete and total disaster and, a, and a, an era that we ought not to remember is really been looked at again by historians and people have sort of reinterpreted it and said, you know what, maybe this is a much more mixed thing than than we used to think. Kathleen Hulser, thank you so much for your time. Okay. Good to talk with you, and uh, good luck with your research into the bosses, the good, the bad, the ugly. Kathleen Hulser is a public historian with the New York Historical Society. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Any true Yankees fan will be grateful for the results, if not the tactics, of this famous boss. George Steinbrenner turned the Yankees around during his career, but not without controversy. He was known for his brashness and hiring and firing. With us now to talk about George Steinbrenner is Phil Pepe. 
Phil has covered sports in New York for more than five decades. He was the Yankees beat reporter for the New York World Telegram and Sun from 1961 to 1964 and for the New York Daily News from 1971 to 1984. He's the author of more than 40 books, including The Ballad of Billy and George. Phil, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. First of all, who dubbed the late Yankees owner George Steinbrenner the boss? You know, I really don't know for sure, but uh, I've been reading, and uh, apparently Mike Lupica of the Daily News is taking credit for it, and I have no reason to doubt that. I just don't, uh, I can't confirm that that's true. I always thought it just evolved somehow, that he liked being known as the boss, and people started calling him the boss, and I thought it just came from there. But if uh, Lupica says he's the first one who wrote it, that's okay with me. Did Steinbrenner like all of the media attention he received? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> no doubt about it. I mean, he he once uh, said something to me that indicated that. I wrote a piece in spring training about I found out from a friend of uh, Catfish Hunters that Catfish had diabetes. And I wrote the story, you know, because that's a pretty good story. It could have affected the, uh, the performance of their best pitcher. And... Uh, so I wrote it, and Steinbrenner accosted me the next day. How could you write such a thing that's giving aid and comfort to the enemy? I said, it's not my enemy, George. I have a job to do. I found out. I found something out. It's a story, and uh, you're, you used to be a journalist. You should know that that's my responsibility is to my, own, my reader and my editor. And he said, you know, he, he kind of calmed him down. He says, well, at least we got the back page. So that told me that that was important to him, that he got the back page in the tabloids, and there was no such thing as bad publicity. First impressions, Phil, can mean a lot. What was your first impression of George Steinbrenner when he took over the Yankees? Nobody knew who he was. That was the thing, you know. But his uh, his first impression, my first impression of him was that he was young, he was uh, enthusiastic, uh, he was glib, he looked like, you know, he was uh, happy to be in New York, happy to be involved in baseball, had no baseball background and admitted that. So it kind of came out of the blue when he was announced as the owner, uh, but I, I had a, a good positive feeling for him. And then as time went on in spring training, and I got to see the other side of him, that he was very meddlesome, he was had his finger in the pie on everything concerning the team. He was a football guy, had a football mentality, and that show, showed through in the way he treated his baseball players. You know, you have to win every game, even spring training games. That was important to him. Uh, And he had to learn that baseball is not a sprint. It's a marathon, and you have to be patient, and every game is an important. And sometimes you have to lose the battle to win the war. What were his locker room speeches like, that being said? Well, I don't know, because, you know, we were never invited to be on the inside of them. We've heard about them, and they were, uh, from what we've heard from the players, they were rah-rah, and very much like a Newt Rockney kind of uh, clubhouse speech or, or something you might expect from a Vince Lombardi. Again, a football mentality. I read that Steinbrenner idolized Generals MacArthur and Patton. Is that true to your knowledge? Well, I, mean, I never really got into that with him. I heard him talk about that, and, I, and I, I've read a lot of stuff that quoted him as saying that, but that never came up in my conversations with him. But it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, I would think, especially Patton, I would think that he would admires Patton's control over his troops, uh, the way he handled his troops, the way he sometimes embarrassed his troops. I think that Steinbrenner would have uh, gravitated to that kind of, of, a, of a, a leader. 
Now, we all know that George Steinbrenner liked to hire and fire. Well, I'm not sure if he liked it, but he certainly did it. He hired and fired Lou Piniella twice and Billy Martin five times. You wrote a, you wrote a book called The Ballad of Billy and George. What story do you like to tell the most about that relationship? Well, that was... <laughs> the... There were so many stories about that relationship, but what I often uh, have likened it to was Elizabeth Taylor and, and Richard Burton would get together and then they would break up. Then they'd get together again and they'd break up. In, the, in other words, they couldn't live together and they couldn't live apart, and that was exactly the relationship of Billy Martin and George Steinbrenner. They were similar in many ways. They both had to win. They both had to be in control, and every time uh, Billy was working for George, they would feud, they would fight, and George would fire him. And once the, he fired him, he'd have second thoughts, and he'd start having guilt feelings, and he'd miss having Billy around, and he'd rehire him. And, but it, it would never last. And it just went on and on five times, as you know. I know that through the years, Phil, you've interviewed a number of Yankees players. What are the good things they said about George Steinbrenner? What are the positives? Oh, that he was very generous that he was always there if a player was in trouble, needed help in any way, uh, if they had family problems. He was always someone you could go to if you needed money, if you needed a recommendation, if you needed a hospitalization and you needed medical treatment. He was always there to get you the very best and in most cases wind up paying for it himself. I think that was the one thing that comes, comes uh, tr- through when you talk to any of the players about how generous he was. Difficult to work for, but always there if you needed him. Phil, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. That was Phil Pepe, author of The Ballad of Billy and George, the tempestuous baseball marriage of Billy Martin and George Steinbrenner. My name is Gene Simmering. I'm retired. Good boss is someone who empathizes with employees um, and encourages employees to perform more than just basic requirements and rewards employees accordingly. Worst boss experience that I've ever had is having an employee that underperformed but not able to terminate that employee. And that was very frustrating. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Don't forget, you can visit WFUV.org to get past editions of Cityscape and listen to our podcast. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're listed as WFUV's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to senior producer Andrea McCrary and producer Morlene Chin. Have a great weekend.